and the uh, historical narrative of uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And uh, the natural progression of things would be that we would be in Exodus chapter 19. 19. However, I'm going to throw a little loop for you because there is a portion of Scripture in Exodus chapter 17 that we didn't cover. And we're going to go back to Exodus 17. We're not going back to Egypt. We're just going back to Exodus 17. Backtracking a few. Because there's a story that is contained in verses 8 through 16 that is a significant piece. And the correlation to your life and my life is significant. And so I want us to... Uh, consider this morning, today's, the title of today's message is The Two Nations Struggle. And we're looking at verses 8 through 16 of Exodus chapter 17. Uh, I'd like to suggest to you that it really could be titled Sticks and Stones Part 3 because we're going to be once again uh, connected with the rod of Moses or the rod of God, if you will. From Moses' perspective, it was the rod of God. And in honor of Moses, God called it the rod of Moses. And so both Moses honoring God and God honoring Moses. So we have this stick, and partway in the midst of the story, we're going to be introduced to a stone. So, uh, but two nations, the two nations struggle. So follow along with me as I read out of the New King James Version. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book. Incidentally, uh, at least five different times God instructed Moses to write it in a book. And so Moses, the author, if you will, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Father, in the next few moments as we consider the perfect law of liberty, Lord, will you help us to grasp and see, to understand, will you unfold and reveal to us the nature of these two nations that are at war. And we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said a strong amen. So we have the two-nation struggle, Israel and the Amalekites, if you will, the Israelites and the Amalekites. Now, you may or may not remember from our earlier studies through the book of Genesis who's who in this nation or nations that we're looking at. Israel, remember, his former name, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, was, in fact, Jacob. And Jacob is a descendant of Isaac. You know and remember the phrase that is frequently quoted 
of uh, the, the God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. And so Isaac is the father of Jacob, Abraham, the grandfather. Amalek, or the Amalekites, are also connected in that Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Now, the scripture says in Genesis 36, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Esau is also a descendant of Isaac. You know the scripture. Esau and Jacob are twins. Twins. Remember Genesis 25. Genesis 25, verses 20 through 23, or 22, say this. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. Let me pause here for just a moment. This is an encouraging portion of Scripture. If you're believing our Father for something, I want to continue to remind you to ask the Lord. Present your requests to our Father. Make them known. God answers the prayers of his children, and here he answered according to the request. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Listen, when things aren't going right for you, when things don't seem right in your life, when things don't seem right in my life, Here's a good example. Let's go ask of the Lord what God is going on. Why is this transpiring in my life? Now then, he says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. There's a profound statement that God makes on a number of fronts, but one that sticks profoundly to me and I believe is for us. One people shall be stronger than the other. There's two nations, one will be stronger. One will be stronger. So kind of stick that in your craw, have that on your paper, one will be stronger than the other. Highlight that. Now, these two brothers, in a way of typology, pointing toward your life and my life, there's a representation of two natures. Esau was a man after the flesh. Jacob, although he has a lot of fleshy kind of moments, he really represents Israel as a spiritual nature. So one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we see and we have seen that in the history of these two nations that the older has, in fact, served the younger. But the conflict continued really all the way up, up to the time of Christ. And we would see in a dialogue that Jesus is having with one of the Leaders, who is an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. So the conflict all the way up in many, many years. So coming back to the text in Exodus now for a moment. I want to note that this story in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16, it contains what theologians would call a first mention, a first mention. The first mention in this portion of Scripture is that Israel as a nation is going to war. It's the first mention of Israel going to war. And in a moment, we're going to see the significance of that in your life and in my life. You see, 
Israel previously, God was the one doing all the battling. He went to war on their behalf. Now, they're going to be in the battle. So let's look at some principles quickly, some theological tools, if you will, in the hermeneutics. I listed on the wall or on the board behind me the, the law or the principle of first mention. The law or the principle of first mention is a guideline for studying the scripture. So as you're studying the scripture and you come across a subject matter in the word of God, as a student of God's word, you can identify where that first mention is and go back there and study it and you can learn more about that subject matter in a simple and clear presentation. So the law of first mention says, to understand a particular word or subject or doctrine, we must find the first place in scripture that it is revealed and study that passage or that context, if you will. The reasoning is the Bible's first mention of a concept is the simplest and clearest presentation. So words, subjects, doctrines are then more fully developed on that foundation. So to fully understand an important and complex theological concept, Bible students are advised to start with its first mention. And so here we have in Exodus 17 the first mention of warfare. I think that's very significant for you and I. Now be reminded that Paul, when he was writing to the church in 1 Corinthians, he said, these things, the Old Testament, these things, these historical narratives, these things happened and they were written down for our admonitions. They are examples written down for us. Examples. The word tupos, it is a type. It is pointing to some future thing. Now, Paul, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he gives an example of the application of the type. He says this. Now, these things became our examples or our tupos, our types, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So he takes an Old Testament story where there was lust of the people and he says, hey, these things are examples for us to the extent that we, like them, don't lust after the wrong things. Do you see the application? An Old Testament story, it's an example, a type, and Paul takes it and says, this applies to my life and to your life in that we would not behave as they behaved, lusting after the wrong things and having lust in our lives. So let us not do that. Does that make sense? So the example is a picture, oftentimes of what not to do, sometimes of what we ought to do. Then we come to the New Testament and we see application in our own lives. Nod your heads if you're with me at this point. So, so this idea or this principle or this subject matter of warfare is a type for you and I. So Israel, remember, and this, you know, with transition, we, the first thought there was those two nations. Now we're going to transition into two natures, the two-nature struggle, the two-nature struggle. Israel has come out of bondage or slavery and out of the nation of Egypt, which is a type of this world. A type of you and I, it's a picture, if you will, of you and I coming out of the control of sin in our lives. That's that bondage. We're coming out of the control of sin in our lives and moving into a place of being born again or out of Egypt the world and being born again. Israel crosses the Red Sea and that is the type of becoming born again. A man transitions over the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, that is a picture and a type of being born again. So in that born again process, we leave the bondage and the world and the control of sin in our lives. Now, here's the interesting thing for you and I. If you're here today and you're born again, you're watching on Facebook Live and you're born again, prior to your commitment and invitation of Christ being the Lord of your life, if you're like me, I did not realize when I lived back here 
Before I knew Jesus, I didn't even realize that I was in bondage. I was just a slave to those things that I yielded my members to. I became a product of whatever urge in my life was working. And so, also Israel discovers after 400 years, hey man, we somehow transitioned from being preeminent in Egypt to being brick makers in Egypt and under harsh slavery. How did that happen? It's like the frog who dies very slowly in the pot of water because someone changed the temperature and it slowly raised one degrees all the way up to the point where the frog boiled in the water. It could have jumped out the whole time, but it never noticed the gradual change of temperature. And so it dies in the boiling water. So it is with Israel. It had this gradual change. They were bigger, stronger, and a more numerous people And yet, somewhere along that 400 years, they found themselves in a place of, we don't even have any tools other than the tools to make bricks. We couldn't even go to war because we have nothing. And so, they didn't realize. So before I was born again, I didn't realize I had a struggle that was working in me. In fact, there was no struggle. Sin wasn't even an option because I just did it anyway. I simply did what felt good to me. Maybe you would remember your days prior to coming to Christ. Now, if you say, well, I came to Christ when I was five. Well, maybe you were just stealing Legos or you were, you know, playing selfishly with other children. I don't know what it was. That's not how it was for me. And the reality is we were dead in our sin and trespasses until Christ came into our lives. So there was no war at that point. I didn't realize. But when I received Christ... Like Israel crossing the Red Sea, I entered into the wilderness, and it's there in the wilderness that I encountered my first struggle. And my first struggle, like Israel's first struggle after crossing the Red Sea, was with Amalek. Amalek. And so, the two-nature struggle, Israel and Amalek. Israel represents the spiritual Amalek represents the flesh. The conflict has begun. And I've known the Lord now for 33 years. And the battle ensues. You know, it's interesting, oftentimes when we talk about the things of the flesh, 1 John reminds us in chapter 2 and verse 16 All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, they're not from God, they're of this world. Those three categorically large slices of the pie. All sin wrapped up in those three. They're three categories, if you will, of sin. Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And to this day, all those struggles are part of the believer's life. How do we overcome the flesh? How do I win? The New Testament reminds us often of the conflict. Paul, some 13 epistles in the New Testament, often points toward, Dan read that portion of scripture out of Romans chapter eight and verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, draws out the two natures. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Again, the contrast. The life of the flesh, the life of the Spirit. Romans 8, chapter 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, or if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the spirit man can put to death the deeds of the fleshy man. The new nature, the old nature. The new garments, the old garments. 
You see the contrast. It's complete throughout the New Testament. Paul writing again to the churches of Galatia. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's an encouragement to you and I. Let's walk in the Spirit. How many of us would love to have one day, one day, where 24 hours in that day we could walk in the Spirit? Can I get an amen? Wouldn't that be a great day? That'd be a day of thanksgiving. Well, come on. Lord, help us to walk in the Spirit. He says, and you will not, or you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish to do. In other words, the Spirit is diametrically opposed to the flesh, and the flesh is diametrically opposed to the Spirit, and they are absolutely going in opposite directions. And if we would live according to the Spirit, we would not gratify the deeds of the flesh. Paul is telling us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh, you will reap corruption and destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit, you will reap life unto everlasting life. What a marvelous promise we have. Why is it that we struggle and we yield and we yield to the flesh so that we do not even do the very things that we wish to do. Paul says, who will save me from this body of corruption? Who will save me from this flesh? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? It is possible. It is possible. So, we are reminded. So now then the hermeneutical principle of first mention reminds us that in order to understand this complex theological subject, we should go to the law of first mention. And so we come to this battle in Exodus chapter 17. So some questions that we might reflect on in looking at this battle. What can we learn from the battle? The battle between Israel and Amalek, Genesis 17. What wisdom might be revealed to us in this contextual first mention, this war? What wisdom may be revealed that could assist me in my battle against my own Amalek? How might I apply the wisdom? There's information, and if I can take the information and apply it, it really becomes wisdom that I possess. What, how might I apply the wisdom so as to defeat my own flesh in my daily walk with the Lord and so walk in the Spirit and not gratify the flesh. Now, let me, let me pause here for just a moment, too, and we'll look at some observations in a moment. Oftentimes, when we talk about the flesh, because of today's society being so carnally and fleshly oriented, that oftentimes people correlate when we talk about the flesh in spiritual settings that it has to do with sexual issues. And it includes that, but it is not limited to that by any stretch of the imagination. In the spectrum, that if the spectrum was as wide as this stage, that section is just over here. There's a whole lot of stuff that is equally as significant, if not more significant, like the simplicity of just encouraging myself to stop listening to my body's drives and start listening to what the Spirit of God is saying. How many of us would love to hear the voice of the Spirit more? Or the understanding of God's Word unveiled to us so we can have aha moments and go, oh, that's what you've been trying to say to me? Guy, if I'd have just been listening, how many times have we said that to ourselves? If I was only listening. Well, that's really bringing our flesh into subjection and Walking in the Spirit. So when we talk about flesh and spirit and this battle, I wouldn't want you for one moment to check out thinking, well, he's probably going to be talking about sexual addiction, blah, 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 blah. Now that is in there. 
but there's a whole spectrum of stuff. Think about your attitudes this last week. Dads, raising kids, don't raise your kids out of anger. The scripture tells us in Proverbs, don't envy an angry man. God's got a better way. That's just the flesh. Oftentimes, men respond in anger because they don't know what the right response is. And so they default to what they have known and seen. That's the flesh. Let's not go there. I, I grew up in Southern California, and I, we used to, back in the day, we had uh, driver's ed. Raise your hand if you remember driver's ed. Anybody here remember the simulators? We actually had little simulators where you got, it was like a little mini car, and they'd play a movie in front of you, and you're like, I gotta use my blinker, and you're doing your deal. And, so, and we learned how to drive defensively. Somehow I took defensive driving and correlated that to my flesh nature, and now everyone's my enemy on the road, and if someone tries to take my space, my response is the natural man. And I have to deny the natural man and not operate out of anger while I'm driving. Because that can do destruction. Does that make sense? Well, I'm in a hurry and this is my space. You can't have it. That's the flesh. Why not consider others' needs over your own? Hey, if that guy's trying to get over, maybe he's in a bigger hurry than you. Maybe, he, maybe he's lost a family member or there's a family member sick at the hospital and you're like gonna get into this defensive driving mode and like gun it so they can't pull into your lane. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you with me? Was that you driving next to me? Okay. So before we consider these few questions about what we might apply and the wisdom that we might learn from this story of the warfare with Amalek. Let's consider what Deuteronomy reveals to us about that battle. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18 say this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear guards or your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. So Amalek, we get a little bit of military intelligence. And so, here's some observations that could help us in our battle today over our Amalek or our flesh. So first observation, verse eight says, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Amalek came without any provocation. There was no provoking. He just showed up. Have you noticed that you can just be sitting there minding your own business and all of a sudden thoughts just start ripping through your brain? You're like, well, I hope there's not a movie showing somewhere else and someone's reading my thoughts right now because I will be highly embarrassed. And we're like, where did that thought even come from? Just unprovoked. Missiles, nukes coming in. And we like focus on them. We're like, I'm going to bring these thoughts into subjection because that's what the scripture tells me to do. Bring every thought captive. And then it seems like the more we try and bring it captive, the more it just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. Like, ah! When that happens, I would just suggest you put in a worship CD and get some music going. It'll help you. Unprovoked. Your flesh attacks unprovoked. Amalek's methods are absolutely despicable, even in wartime. Who does that? We have laws of engagement. We have rules of engagement. They had rules of engagement, and these guys did not respect it. And your flesh and my flesh will not respect boundaries. Boundaryless. 
No rules of engagement. Amalek attacked the rear ranks. Your flesh will seek to blindside you. I wasn't expecting that. How are you going to respond? Are you going to engage in the flesh side of things or are you going to engage in the spirit side of things? Anybody here ever been surprised with information that came your way? And you're like, what? And the natural man reaction you can tell immediately is not the spiritual man reaction. And you know this is how I should do it, but somebody just texted me to let me know I only have a few minutes left. Thank you. <laughs> it's still daylight savings time for me. <laughs> uh, Amalek attacked the stragglers. This is important because many of us find ourselves alone. And you should know that if there was a statistic that could be measured, the majority of Temptation occurs when we're alone. You can be alone in a crowd this size if you're up here cerebrally and you're thinking and allowing thoughts to wander. Stragglers. The mass of the people were moving this way, but those who were elderly, those who were sickly, those who were physically infirmed, they were being spread out. It's like that knife with peanut butter on it going across the toast. It gets real thin on the one side, but on the front end of that knife, if you're putting peanut butter on toast like I do it, it's a big cluster. But it gets thin and spread out on the backside, and that's what was happening. So Amalek, the distance between Israelites was increasing as the slower were moving, and then the medium slowers, and then the fast slowers, and then the slow fasters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there was, it was getting spread out. And so when they attack in the rear, the stragglers, the distance for someone to be able to respond quickly that's even healthy got further and further away. And so he's attacking where there's weakness. Your flesh and my flesh will attack where we're weak. We get a little information from the story that can help us, wisdom, Amalek attacked, tired and weary. Have you noticed that your defenses go down when you're tired? Anybody here ever react when you're tired as opposed to respond? Seven of us. We need to repent. Our tendency when we're tired and we're weary and worn down, our flesh rears up, tries to attack. Verse 8 gives us a lot of spiritual intelligence. Verse 9, it says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Fight with Amalek. Get into the physical battle of fighting. Well, I came to Christ and he's going to fight all my battles. Yes, but that doesn't mean that you're exempt from fighting also. We must fight. Joshua went out physically engaged with the enemy. You and I must physically engage in the battle. So Israel had to engage physically. You and I, in order to resist temptation of the flesh, we must engage. Denying the flesh is a mental decision. It is a spiritual decision. It is a physical decision. We must engage and when it transitions from the spiritual piece of my heart to my mind, and I mentally assent, yes, I'm going to obey that which is right, now I have to act on that and say no. Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Read again Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. In the NIV, it says, the, spirit, the, the grace of God which has appeared to all men, which brings salvation, teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldliness, and lusts of the day. 
It's God's grace that teaches us to say no. Why? Because God's grace has been so great in my life, I want to be well-pleasing to my Lord. So I say no to the flesh. God, help us to engage physically, mentally, and spiritually in that activity. Notice Joshua didn't go out by himself. Listen, if you're trying to fight your battle by yourself against your flesh, your tendency will be to give in to the flesh. We cannot fight alone. The scripture tells us in Proverbs, the man who seeks isolation rages against all sound wisdom. If you look in your life and you find yourself seeking isolation, you're raging against wisdom. Don't do that. Don't do that. Joshua was instructed by Moses to get some brothers and go fight. Moses is like a type of Christ. So God would be saying to you and I, get some brothers in the battle with you. Get some dudes or dudettes to fight with you. Can I get a hearty amen? We need each other. The text goes on to say in verse 9, the tail end of 9, Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So just as Moses went to the hill, what did Moses go up to the hill to do? Moses went to go up to the hill, the top of the hill, to intercede. He was praying. The posture of prayer for the Hebrews was with hands raised up in the air. He raised his hands. He likely had the staff in his hand. He might have had the staff in both hands. And he's communing with the Father. He's communing with God. We got to go up. Prayer is essential in the battle with Amalek in your life. If you're not praying to bring defeat of your flesh, you're likely already walking in defeat. The rod of God is like the testament of God. It was the demonstrated piece of power. Throw it on the ground. It became a serpent. They threw theirs on the ground. They became serpents. But the rod of God ate the other staffs, ate the other snakes. It's the testimony of God. He took it by the tail and it became a staff again. The rod with which you struck the river, take that and strike the rock. It was the testimony of the power of God. We have the testimony of the power of God, the word of God, and it should be dwelling rich in us. Let us approach the hill of God with the word of God in our hearts and coming out of our mouths, those rivers of living water, and pray the scriptures, pray the word of God. As Joshua did, as Moses told him, so we should do what Jesus told us to do. He said, pray. He said, believe. Here's some good advice. Pray and believe. Moses had Aaron and her. People often ask, who, who is her? There's probably a funny pun in there somewhere. Josephus identifies her was... Miriam's husband. This is, this is Moses' brother-in-law and his brother Aaron. Close confidants, close to him, he took with him to pray. I would like to suggest to you that you and I should have close confidants that we can entrust to pray and to sustain us in our time of prayer. We must go to war with our friends. Verse 11 says, and it was so, or so it was, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Again, the posture of prayer, hands up. Moses prayed, Israel prevailed. Moses got weary in prayer, and can I say this, and it's probably on the screen already, prayer is hard work. It's probably the most talked about subject in the kingdom of God, and maybe one that is less practiced in the kingdom of God. As you evaluate your own life, 
What does your time of prayer look like? What does your perpetual prayer and communion with your Father look like? Jesus pulled himself away from the crowd and found a solitary place, and he spent time with his Father. He's our example. Do you pull away from the crowd? Oftentimes, Jesus would stay up all night praying to his Father and communing with his Father. He's our example. You're not gonna do it, gang. We can't do it on our own. You can't do it in your own strength. We need connection and relationship with our Father through Jesus and the Spirit. When we pray, we will prevail. When we cease to pray, our flesh will. Verse 12 says, but Moses' hands became weary. So, he took, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Listen, again, prayer's hard work. We must stand. Here's the deal. They put a rock beneath him. Can I suggest to you, will you fix yourself upon the rock? Fix yourself upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ and pray, pray. Lift up holy hands, talk to the Lord. And let's support one another in our prayers. We need people standing side by side, praying and believing God, standing on that same rock and holding up our hands and holding one another up in prayer. Does that make sense? Look how Aaron and her supported beneath him. They were support underneath. Man, we need to gird each other up. We need to be there and support one another. You know, when there's a prayer meeting called at the church, I know it's not necessarily convenient. Has it ever been convenient to take a night out from home or a night away? It's never a convenience. But gang, we need each other. Wouldn't it be marvelous if the night that we had prayer, it was the busiest night of the month inside the four walls of the building? Come on. The second Sunday night of every month is a time of prayer. We have a time, it's about an hour and a half where we can pray with and pray for one another. Let's fill the house. What if, what if 200 people came? We wouldn't have space for them, so we just have to move outside. And if it had to be with umbrellas, let's do it. Let's believe God and pray for one another and support one another. So, verse 13 says, so Joshua defeated Amalek. The prayer was sustained. The hands were lifted high. And victory ensued in the physical. The spiritual victory brought forth a physical victory. As Israel defeated Amalek, so you and I can defeat our own flesh in Christ. So some important it's important, important spiritual principles. There are two natures in you today if you are born again. One will be stronger than the other. One will be. God intended the older to serve the younger. The older, remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, why do you marvel that I tell you you must be born again? You must be born of the water and born of the spirit. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth to spirit. In order to be born again, you have to have a natural birth. So the flesh is the older. Born of the spirit is the younger and the older should serve the younger. Look, if we walk in the Spirit, this tent that God has given us will serve us in our walk with the Lord. It will be a tool wherewith God can accomplish his will. But if it's the other way around and the younger is serving the older, the reality is you'll just be a tool. Because it's not how God designed it. And you will be driven 
by your flesh. Let's not live that way. The younger, or the older serving the younger. The battle must be fought spiritually and physically. We must engage in others' battles with them. We must enlist others to battle with us. We must fortify our weak areas we and our weary spots. Can I suggest to you that you and I do this by sharing our weaknesses with one another? It's a great practice. It's a spiritual discipline to reveal your weakness, to reveal the areas of your temptation, to reveal your areas of failure. Well, I don't want to do that because then they'll think I'm a failure. Well, it's because you, you probably are. <laughs> I mean, welcome to the club. Own it and don't stay there because he died upon the cross at Calvary not for our defeat but to put the world and its systems under his feet for our victory. He always leads us in triumph, triumphant procession in Christ. Let's live there. Let's not straggle, find ourselves alone. Let's rest on the sure foundation. So I'm going to close in just a moment. We're going to have communion. I just want to mention a couple of other places that Amalek shows up. If you've read First and Second Samuel, you'll, re- you'll remember this is where we transition from uh, the judges, where the judges of Israel were, and then we transition into the monarchy, and Saul is the first king. Saul's first assignment as king of Israel is to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. So God is good to his word and says, write it down, I will war against them. And so he sends out the first monarchy, Saul, to go out and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Saul doesn't do what he was told to do. He doesn't do it. He disobeys and he lies. And it's interesting because you know the story of the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle And he tries to spiritualize his disobedience and he says, well, I brought these animals back because the people saw that they were good and we brought them to sacrifice to your God. Shut up. That's the literal translation that Samuel said to Saul. Shut up. I will show you what God told me last night. And Saul had said, hey, I even brought Agag the king back. And Samuel says, you you bring Agag to me. You should read the story in the King James, the authorized version. It's epic. Because it's, honestly, it's the most graphic portion of scripture I think I've come across. When Agag was brought before Samuel, Samuel, the scripture says, hacked Agag to pieces. You want to know how to deal with the flesh? Mortify it. <laughs> Hack it to pieces. Destroy it. Crucify it. Because Saul doesn't do what God instructed him to do, we have recorded for us in the first chapter of 2 Samuel the personal testimony of an Amalekite who claims to have actually given the final blow to King Saul and taking his life. It's probable that that is not, in fact, what transpired. It's just his testimony of what he did. David, a man after God's own heart, after hearing what the Amalekite said, he said to one of his servants, well, he first said to the Amalekite, did you not fear God that you would touch his anointed? And he says to the servant, strike him. And he struck a deadly blow, and the Amalekite was killed. David demonstrates what we need to do in relationship to our own flesh. We must strike it dead. Here's another Old Testament familiar story to most of us. Raise your hand if you know the story of Esther. It's a great, great Bible story. The hero of the story is Esther and uh, Mordecai, and it's you, you know really great scriptures for such a time as this. That's often quoted. For such a time as this, God is... Boom, boom, boom. But the foe or the villain 
in this historical time of Israel's history was a guy by the name of Haman. And it might be interesting to several of us in this room that may or may not have known this already, but Haman, the scripture gives us a description of who he is. It says this, after these things, king, as you were as, that's how I pronounce it, as you were as, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Agagite, King Agag. His lineage produced Haman, and Haman is an Amalekite. And the story of Esther reveals that Amalek tried to utterly destroy Israel. A further picture that your flesh, my flesh, untended, will seek to bring destruction in our lives. So, what about you and I today? We're coming to the communion table. In fact, I'm going to ask those who are going to be serving us communion if you would come at this time. And we have three minutes to complete communion. So we need you to run. No, I'm teasing. As we come to the communion table, the worship team is coming, and we'll give instructions in just a moment. I want us to be thinking, what about you today? This information has been given to us, not for us to say what a fine sermon or what an average sermon or what a pastor needs help sermon, but to walk away with a biblical truth. You and I are in a war, and there are two persons, or there are two natures within us. There is no place in the New Testament, there is no place in the kingdom of God where there is a rehabilitation of the flesh. There's no room for rehabilitation of the flesh. If you're here today and you've been trying to make your flesh better, you're attacking it in the entirely wrong way. The New Testament tells us mortify the flesh. Listen to what Galatians 5 says. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. Put it to death. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We nullify them through death. Thank you, brother. So what about you today? Recognizing that God said one will be stronger than the other. One will be stronger. What about you? What about in you? Which one is stronger? Is the spirit man in you stronger? Or is the flesh man in you stronger? How are you doing in your battles? We're coming to the communion table and we're going to take just a few more minutes today. We're going to all stand. In fact, would you stand with me this morning? We're going to relax.